Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. <laughs> which is of course Burmese for Achtung. I'm that was very purely, good. That really yeah, was really good. I'm very purely straight off the page. I've no idea if, if a Burmese person would run around panicking as a result of hearing that. Well, well they probably good. would. It sounded brilliant. <laughs> it sounded fine. Well, on the day that Myanmar armed forces confirmed they've seized control of power from the civilian government, I kept hearing it this morning on the radio as taken back control. Like, no! <laughs> um, it seems only appropriate to shout out the old warning in a language that might have a tiny bit of relevance just now. Welcome, of course... Do we have ways of making you talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland? How are you, James? Yeah, well, I'm not bad actually. Um, I've had a I've had a, a reasonable weekend, not least because I found my grandmother's pearl necklace that had been lost last. I week. beg your pardon. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, no, 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 come on, no, don't, don't, don't get smutty. <laughs> so this was a real necklace of pearls, and yes. um, it had been my my uh, my grandmother's, and she died. Uh, just before my mother turned 18 and my mother was very devoted to it and was oh, obviously very goodness. devastated that she she died anyway a couple of years ago she gave it she gave it to my daughter daisy and on wednesday daisy had a mindfulness day which about before you know two years ago would have just been called a day off but but obviously we yeah. live in different times now uh, yeah, yeah. and so um we went for a really long <laughs> for the about the long eight mile walk which is about the longest Lovely. walk we've done in three months or something. And, of course, that was the day that we had to lose Daisy's necklace that used to be my grandmother's. No! So I've since walked, <laughs> but we weren't quite sure when she'd lost it. Was it that walk or was it an earlier five-mile walk? So anyway, oh, no! So I've done a lot of walking in the last week. Anyway, I thought there was actually no <laughs> chance of ever finding this because, you know, there's sort of, you know, Passchendaele yeah. levels of mud at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Anyway, you know, I've, I've walked five miles on... Thursday morning, I got yeah. up early and did another. I did redid the route, that sort of seven mile route on Friday, and then yesterday we went back and did another bit. This time with Daisy, and it was snowing, which is not great when you're trying to find a pearl necklace. Um, no. But there it was. We found it. What? Yeah, and literally about what, five like- minutes before, Daisy said to me, "Said, what do you think the chances are of finding it?" And I went, "Less than one percent." And I considered myself an optimist, and there it was. <laughs> What, like hanging on a stile or in a no, puddle? No, or... uh, we were in this hollowway. We were going down this hollowway and it was re- it was like a river running down this hollowway, this sort of sunken old old yeah. sort of drover's track. And and so Daisy, had, but who wasn't wearing proper boots, was on, the, was on the kind of bank above, which was sort of eight feet above, and then had um, dropped down because she couldn't get any further along, so dropped back down onto the hollowway. And, and she could remember where that was. Yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, come on, let's give it one last look. And yeah, yeah. Um, we jumped, you know, where was it exactly that you jumped down? She said, I'm pretty certain it was here. So I said, okay, well, let's have a really good look around here. Lots of sort of broken logs and snow and yeah. brambles and crap and ivy. Yeah, yeah. And I started brushing away the snow. <laughs> there it was. Ta-da! Amazing. And Gosh. second bit of good news was I got my pixie suit. Um, 
Yeah, so tell us been... about the pixie suit. Well, the exciting thing about this is, is so in November, the National Army Museum are holding a exhibition about the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. Um, I thought you were going to say a jumble sale. A jumble sale. <laughs> 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 yeah, they're doing a yeah, they're car, doing boot. car boot. They're, yes. doing a, they're doing a tank a tank boot sale where they're they're getting rid of all the. Uh, all the stuff that started to pong. No, go on. Anyway, anyway sorry. so they're, doing, sorry. they're holding this exhibition, which is great, and, and sort of based around the, the work I've been doing on the, on the book I'm doing at the moment. And yeah. um, so I'm sort of, you know, uh, uh, creating the right word. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, I'm sort of doing all the yeah. writing for it and planning it and all the rest of it with them, hand in hand with Peter Johnson, you know, our old friend and various others, good yeah, folk brilliant. at the National Army Museum. Uh, anyway, I was talking to Peter um, a, a week or so ago, and I said, look, you know, what I really want is I want some sort of tactile stuff. I want people to be able to kind of touch yeah. things, you know, like a battle dress yeah, yeah. and a and a pixie suit. And he said, well, we've got all that, but we can't have that out on, you know, that that would yeah. have to be behind sort of glass or whatever. So I yeah. said, okay, well, what if I buy a, if I get hold of a pixie suit, would, would, be, would we be able to kind of hang that up and people be able to touch it and feel it and stuff? Yeah. And he said, yeah, yeah, of course. So I've been scouring eBay ever since and found one. And it just so happens. Amazing. It, it, it fits me perfectly, which is, which is, you know, it's not like I'm going to be spending an awful lot of time wearing my pixie suit, but but it's, yeah. it's just a nice little extra thing. When did when did the pixie suit come in? It's like it's late. Um, I think in forty uh, four. I think in forty four. So is is it what they take to Normandy, or is it slightly later for the? Is it for the winter? Yeah, it's, it's for the winter. So it comes in. They, they get issued them in the. I mean, the one I've got actually is nineteen fifty four, but it's exactly the same. It's completely unchanged. Right, right. You know, okay. they're, they're, you know, it is absolutely one and the same as the ones they were producing in nineteen. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, so it's really good, and it's got the surge line. You know, surge lined, and it's got the hood, and it's got all the pockets, yeah. the pens, yeah, and yeah. zips, and all the right place. Yeah. And I mean, it's an amazing piece of gear. It's incredibly warm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I'm rather pleased with that. Because. So have you got one of those leather jerkins as well? Because because that's the really natty bit of kit that you see, particularly in the later half of. 1944, or the into the winter, into the autumn, where they've all got they've got that leather jerkin, and the, yeah. the tank guys are wearing it, the infantry are wearing it. it. Seems to be like a seems to be because what happens is what I think is quite interesting is you look at the pictures of the uniform in the summer of 44, and everyone's basically wearing the battle dress that they came over with, and by the winter they've all they've all deviated, haven't they? You've got yeah. great coats. I mean, obviously because of the weather, you've got great coats, you've got jerkins, you've got noddy suits you've got all sorts of other other apparel appearing haven't you yeah. so um where, where, what the, what's the story with the jerking because I, I quite fancy one of those because i've got a, i've got this uniqlo gilet and it doesn't it's too short for me it's a large but it's still too short so right. basically if i'm out for a walk i feel the draft around the, yeah, you know where around my, the the top of my, exactly around the top of my trousers so i, I wanted something longer and I, i've i got my eye on the leather gilet. What is the, what's the story with the gilet? Yeah, well, I've, well, well, the, the leather jerkin's been around for ages. I, I think that's actually sort of its origins are in the late nineteenth century as a sort of agricultural workers' jerkin. Right. Um, right. And they certainly were using them in the First World War, and they just they continue. And um, when I was, did you know I was doing all those Jack Tanner novels? Um, yeah. I always had him have a have a leather jerkin because the great thing about the leather jerkin is is that you can move your arms up and down. Uh, yeah. which you can't do with when you start wearing great coats and stuff. And obviously the thing with a with a an infantryman or any soldier really is you really need to be able yeah. to kind of move your arms quickly when you when yeah, you yeah, need yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And it's just yeah. having great coats on top of your battle dress just really restricts your movement. Um yeah, yeah. And, and the great thing about the battle dress is that it is incredibly generously cut under the under the arms. 
I mean, really, yes. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. if you look at this this hoodie, my, my independent company hoodie, it's quite tight <laughs> up here, really. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. right, because it's nice and stretchy cotton and stuff. But the battle dress is very, very generously cut up here. And that is so that you can crawl on the ground easily. You can quickly raise your rifle, whatever it is. Um, the jerkin, obviously, because it hasn't got sleeves, enables you to do that. And it is amazing that if you keep your central body warm and your and your nether regions warm, then the rest of your body tends to be warm as well. You've got to need something on top of your head because the heat evaporates from your, you know, goes out of the top of your head because obviously heat rises. So as long as you've got your, 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 something on your head and around your body, you tend to be kind of okay. Uh, I've got one. I think my one's a 1942 one. Um, and it's absolutely fantastic. And it, it, what, it is, big fat, it, but the big buttons on it. Yeah, big buttons on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 lever is just starting to kind of sort of um, degrade a little bit, kind of wear away a little bit. But but it's very warm. Surge lined, that classic kind of thin surge that you get on the lining yeah. of your um. Well, I think you I know, might, of, 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 I might, your, of your Denison smock, which is also on the pixie suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might yeah, pick no, one they're up good. Then. They're really good, and, okay. and they look they look pretty pucker. I think it would have to be a rep- replica though, because I can't bring a stinky, crinkly old thing home and say I paid four hundred <laughs> quid for that. <laughs> Well, mine doesn't. I, I, mine, mine doesn't stink at all. It stinks. It smells of leather. But anything of leather smells of leather. But it doesn't smell of sort of old fags and old man. You know, <laughs> it's all right. Appropriately enough for the Second World War. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um. We well, we've some questions. Um. By the way, um. Thanks everyone who joined us on Thursday night for the um live cast with Peter Caddick Adams. I particularly enjoyed it. Um. Uh. Because he's been on with you before, but when I've been out, he's been our super sub. When I've been at, at work gigging but um well, i really enjoyed yeah. talking to peter and what what i loved about it in particular it really was like a it was like having a, a free-flowing seminar because you could you could pick up a point ask a supplementary question see where he went with the thing and he's well, and he's you know particularly on that battle he is he's so encyclopedic yeah um i mean uh, he, he he had very very standoffish parents um up in staffordshire where he was where he was um brought up and when he was 14, he got, you know, when he was sort of early teenage, he became absolutely obsessed with the Second World War. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, read all the comics, all the rest of it. And when he was 14, he yeah. he found out there was of some living history group that were going to go to Normandy for the 40th anniversary, 30th anniversary, uh, yeah, yeah, 30th anniversary in 1974. Yeah. yeah. And so he wrote to them and said, you know, could I come along with you? And they went, yeah, sure. Uh, we're, we're going as Americans this time. So get yourself some kit and come along. So he... he Bought himself a whole load of kind of you know American kit, got yep. on the train, presumably in in the kit, went and found these guys, and they said, "Yeah, come for the ride." You know, his parents didn't bat an eye; just thought it was absolutely completely fine. So he went to <laughs> Normandy with a bunch of people, age fourteen, adults that he'd never met before yep. in his life, in a jeep. Yeah, and oh, so amazing. it all began. And, and the great thing about Peter is is that all his all his knowledge is has been built up sort of ever since then. And ever yeah. ever since that time, he's been walking the ground and meeting people. You know, he met all these people in the seventies and eighties. You know, yeah. long before I'd even sort of thought about it. So he yeah. met all these guys when they were still comparatively young men. You know, Hans von Luck yeah. and you know John Howard and you know all these yeah. sort of people. And, and yeah. all that just infuses his wider knowledge. And then he became kind of number two to a, the, the late great Professor Richard Holmes, yeah, who really was just the most wonderful human being as well as being a brilliant and hugely knowledgeable knowledgeable historian and those two were absolutely thick as thieves they were total bezies and yeah. um you know what what 
uh, and Peter just sucked up everything that kind of you know Richard knew and was learning you know R- Richard was really the pioneer of the kind of battlefield the post-war battlefield tour really in many ways yeah and sort of taking yeah. it from that kind of very military staff ride and kind of popularizing it in every way I mean I know there were sort of cooks tours and all the rest of it but 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 yeah. but Richard really sort of took it onto another level and you know that 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 is Peter's background yeah and so any conversation you have is always going to be laced with kind of as part of sort of 40 years of knowledge and walking the ground yeah. and meeting people. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You just, you know, and yeah. it's just, you, you can come to something fresh and you can, yeah. you can learn it uh, from scratch, but there's nothing to beat accumulated knowledge, is there? Yeah. Speaking of coming to something fresh, we both, uh, last week, we, we, um, uh, We've we've been trading this um, World War Two visualized, haven't we? Second World War visualized yeah. thing. Um, and there's a there's a piece I sent you before Christmas, which you've finally got around to watching. Uh, thanks. Um, this Sernke Neitzel, <laughs> who um, talks about why the Germans, um, it's why didn't the Germans win in the West? Is is yeah. his is the sort of question mark of the sort of half hour chat with him talking about. Uh, Tactical stuff, basically, and the process of learning that went on inside the Wehrmacht. And it's absolutely fascinating. I don't know what you made of it. Um, I, I thought, thought it, was... it was fascinating. Really, it, it was one of those moments where you suddenly think, ah, I, I, this is taking me down a route of completely different, fresh appraisal. And, and, and that's, that's yeah. so exciting. It's sort of, it's an Adam Two's moment or, or yeah, know, going to talk to that guy who told me that the mg42 fired too fast you know 14 years ago or whatever it was <laughs> yeah you know yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a sunny yeah. sunny sort of thing oh okay right and and i mean the basic th- thesis was that the germans after against they they continue to have counterattacks against the russians but basically yep. never had a successful counterattack after the kasserine pass yes you know, they, which is, which remain- is february 1943 yeah, that the, 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 what they're able to do against the Russians, because and it's it's to do with um, air supremacy and air superiority, isn't it? Is that 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 the air isn't contested in the same way on the Eastern Front? That they are able to do mobile warfare against the Russians. They are able to push them back. They do. They they they're successful in doing so. Um, after Kursk, um, uh, there's a there's a successful counterattack. Yes. Um, and it, uh, it, it it's I mean it's it's really really interesting and that 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 that. What he says, and he's looked at Anzio in particular. He said, "You look at Anzio; they basically realise they haven't got an answer to um, Allied firepower. So, no. so because after all, you know, artillery, the Queen of the Battlefield, blah blah blah. It's more men in the Royal Artillery than the Royal Navy by 1944. All this sort of stuff. Um, and again, it's one of these things where artillery is like the trains running on time. It's like the it's like the Royal Navy. We don't talk about art- artillery." as a, an integral weapon system part it's the sharp it's definitely the sharp end of the british army but it's not really a thing that gets the same attention as the the tanks or the infantry because it's expect it, because we expect it to work you call up a stonk it comes and uh, 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 as it were and so we don't we t- tend not to think about it and so the germans basically they can't think of a way and he says it's interesting because he talks about they can't think of a way strategically they can't get beyond the tactical in their thinking. They never think beyond the tactical. And that for all their... And this is really interesting because, after all, their reputation is for brilliance on the tactical level. But, but if you're only thinking tactically and can't apply it beyond 
that immediate, your immediate tactical problems. You're never going to be able to do anything strategically. You're never going to be able to do anything bigger picture, are you? Is what he's saying. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. Although he does at one point say, well, and the problem is that when you look at the British, they're still kind of doing first world war stuff. You think, well, no, no, they're not. No, you know, not. that, that has moved on. That, that yeah. way of looking at that has moved on. And you want, I want, you want to lean in and go, mate, you, yes. need to, you need to update on that, I'm afraid. Yes. But, well, <laughs> I thought what was really interesting about that was, was he, he's, he's saying that the, the problem is that the Germans don't have an answer to, to British artillery, you know, or allied artillery. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, is, is there is also no alternative to the Germans fighting close to the front line and being surrounded by vast amounts of mountains and no clear axes yeah. of advance. In Italy yeah. and in Normandy, so yeah, yeah. it's you know, and that that lack of kind of maneuver of, of maneuver warfare that he's saying that the Allies are afflicted by clearly isn't true because otherwise you wouldn't have the Great Swan, you know that they're, yeah. they're they're completely geared up for the exploitation in Normandy, yeah, yeah. but aren't able to do it, and that is because they haven't predicted that the Germans are going to fight this 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 battle in Normandy incredibly close to the in close to the sea, uh, and and this attritional fight that sort of takes place from the middle of June to pretty much the sort of end of second half of, you know, third half of, um, uh, of July, 1944. Um, I, the other thing I thought was really interesting about what he was saying was that their counter battery fire just was really, really ineffective. And what they'd forgotten to do was to how to operate fast, which of course is Bavagan's Creek. You know, that is the USP of the Blitzkrieg years. Yeah. Um, uh, and actually, what he what he was sort of prompting was kind of sort of thoughts that we'd already had, but sort of articulating it much more effectively. Uh, and the lack of counter, you know, it's amazing how often you come across. Of course, well, of course, the Germans, you know, we knew that they wouldn't counterattack at night because they never attack at night, you know. But actually, yeah. that is exactly what they need to learn to do because yeah. at night is the one time they can operate with clear skies. Yeah, yeah, yes. But Which instead, the, yeah. they're using nighttime just to resupply and bring up. Yeah. bring up reinforcements and bring yes up- because because they because the only time they can do anything is at not anything in those terms is at night so they decide to prioritize resupply rather than counterattack which is which is which is really interesting isn't it that that you that the allies can do what they want when they want they prefer to do it during the day but they can do it at night at night if they want and in fact what's interesting is that that you know uh that that then becomes that you know we totalize that then becomes all right well then we'll do it at night you know uh it, it, that that's when we'll apply the extra pressure because they really because they don't have a they don't they can't handle the night i mean it's very very interesting because he says that there's that thing he says about smoke doesn't he, he says they're all writing to each other again they keep using bloody smoke on us and they don't think to do it themselves they don't work smoke in um for their own for their own counterattacks at all and they're all they're all they're all basically Everyone's saying to each other, you know, the people doing the thinking are saying, how on earth do we deal? You know, they use smoke and it's really effective. How on earth do we deal with smoke? And they don't think, well, why don't we nick that? Which is really, really interesting because after all, the Allies spend, what, uh, the first three years of the war going, how did the Germans do it? Ah, in France. Crap. Well, we need to nick. We need to borrow that. We need to steal that. We need to steal Blitzkrieg. How do we do that? How do we implement it with our existing setup, our existing systems? Do we reform them? Do we retrain them? Do we reintegrate them? How does that work? And they, and they spend until really, I mean, sort of until uh, uh, Mary Cunningham's tent is moved next to the Eighth Army's tent, and they join those two things up properly. That you get the that you get the three D aspect, right? Yeah, and that's you know, I mean, August nineteen forty-two. <laughs> it's exactly my point, but it's really, really interesting. And he said, so the British are doing it, 
And the Americans are doing it, obviously, because they're all watching what the Germans are doing because it's worked. And then uh, and the Germans, by uh, and the point he's making is the Germans don't seem to be doing that themselves, or at least he doesn't seem to be able to find it. I mean, it's I thought it's, it's a fascinating, Wasn't fascinating really little fascinating. talk. And also that. So then you've got to ask, well, why are they stuck? Why are they unable to um, make these changes? What's the? Why is the organisation incapable of doing? Why is it sclerotic like this? What's the problem? And you, I think you may end up with the fact that, you know, that, that their command structures, although their command structures are good at coming up with, you know, good at planning and good at, because after all, good you know, German tactical. command are good at the tactical that they just can't think beyond it. It's really, well, really, really interesting. He, and he, also because you, and also because you got the Nazis going. No, you must do it this way, or I'll, or you know, yes. or you're in the shit. Well, I he mean, made he made two really, really interesting points. I thought well, the first one was about Salerno, which is you know where Kesselring usually gets an awful lot of credit for it. You know, it wasn't planned, and Hitler was going to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line, blah blah blah. Yeah, and he put yeah. some stiff opposition. But he's saying there is no plan for it at all. So so they just turn up and they counterattack, uh, which is what Germans always yep. do. And because it's sort of, you know, they do it very quickly because they're close to the close to the um, the shore. They're able to kind of get an awful lot of men and, and, and material yep. into that area. But there is no artillery plan. There's no real, it hasn't really been properly coordinated and fought, fought through, which is why yep. ultimately it kind of, it fails. You know, and in his point is, why don't they have more men? Why don't they have more guns there if they're kind of sort of, you know, yeah. because Hitler's already predicted that is where the Allies are going to land. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so actually he said they're just not they're not moving fast enough on this, which I thought yeah. was really interesting. The second thing is, what do they do at Anzio? Because what what is proving the case is because the Allied counter battery fire, which is so. So what happens is your artillery fires and gets a few ranging shots. And then, then your opposition then fires back, and that is counter-battery fire. And so what they discover is, is that Allied counter-battery fire is really, really effective. Yeah. Very good at suppressing the German artillery fire. Very good at finding out where they are in very quick order. Partly because they've got very good ranging equipment, partly because of um, air superiority, um, partly because of intelligence, the whole shebang. I mean, the whole kind of put it all yeah, together. Yeah. It means that they can respond very quickly. So what what, what Sönkenitzer was, was saying was what you find is actually German artillery is simply not firing very much because if yeah. they do, they're going to be knocked out and no one wants to get knocked out, which I thought was yeah. amazing. I just well, never isn't considered it, that. Well, it, well, isn't it interesting, though? So so you don't fire the artillery in, get, in case it gets knocked out and you haven't got your counter-battery capability up to, stre- up to scratch. What's your artillery for? I mean, right. what do you do? What do you do well, with it? Well, you, you know, use it as an anti-tank weapon. Um, uh, uh, and right. that, that, of course, is and where the... And just shed loads of mortars, you know. Yeah, but, but yeah. And, well, and then the British, of course... Certainly, the British by by the end of 1944 have developed, um, you know, radar tracking for um, uh, for counter mortar fire, yeah, and uh, and do a good job of suppressing mortar fire. So even then, you fire your mortars, you get suppressed. I mean, it's it's. He, I thought he was he's really really interesting. We we need to take a break anyway. Um, a quiz question for you all to answer while we take this break: Which country bravely declared war on both Germany and Japan on February the first, 1945? Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Anyone get the answer? It was, of course, Ecuador who declared war on Germany and Japan <laughs> on February the 1st, 45. Um, uh, I don't know what the contribution amounted to after that, but God bless them. 
You've got to be in it to win it, haven't you? That's the simple truth. Right, now, um, should we do some questions, James? Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, why not? Okay, um, this is from Tony Kingham. Uh, hi, gents. Still loving the podcast. I make no apology for emailing and not using Twitter, pun intended. I've just turned 60, <laughs> so it feels like the most appropriate form of correspondence for a man of dignity and maturity. I'd agree with that. I'm a currently reading I'm currently reading the second volume of War in the West and still enjoying it and enjoying it very much. Steel not flesh is the phrase that comes up in both volumes. And James uses it frequently on the podcast. My question for James is this. So for him, it's a question for you, James, not for me. Um, although I have an answer, to, I have an answer too. I want your um, answer. Uh, I want your answer. Uh, was this phrase used at the time as a stated part of policy or doctrine, or dare I say it, is it a revisionist explanation that makes us Brits feel better about ourselves? I hope it's the former, but in all my web searches so far, all results lead to James. Keep up the good work, Tony. Well, the reason it all comes back to me is because I have been banging on about it quite a lot, and that's the easiest yeah. thing for Google to search. I mean, and, yeah. and the whole point about me writing that War in the West trilogy and the, and the work I've been doing is um, as a counterpunch to earlier narrative histories where the British are shit and hanging off the shirt tails of the Americans and the Germans are all rubbish and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah. yeah, it absolutely was a strategy, and it was something that they were um, that that that. Britain had completely worked out before the war that there could be no such repeat of what had happened in the First World War um, and that uh, infantry-based armies were inherently inefficient. And I think yeah. the Second World War absolutely proved that to a point. I mean, yeah. the, the, you, you don't, the, there's nothing particularly big or clever about having 300 infantry divisions because the more infantry divisions you have, the more people are going to be killed. Um, I yeah. think when I was doing my um, my Sicily research, I was I was reading good old Ernie Pyle, that the, the legendary war correspondent, and I came across this this amazing piece um, where he has just arrived <clears throat> from a landing ship, landing craft, yeah, on the south, southern Sicilian coast, and he says, and I'm just going to read this bit out, and he said. I walked gingerly on big steel pontoon piers, although I should say in American. I couldn't tell a naval lieutenant commander in coveralls from an army sergeant in a sun helmet. And I won't continue with that vein. Um, sometimes <laughs> it seemed as if half the men of America were there, all working madly together. Suddenly, I realised what all this was. It was America's long-awaited power of production finally rolling into the far places where it had to go to end the war. It sounds trite when it is put into words, but the might of material can overwhelm everything before it. We saw that in the last days of Tunisia. We saw it again there in Sicily. The point was that we on the scene knew that for sure that we could substitute machines for lives and that if we could plague and smother the enemy with an unbearable weight of machinery in the months to follow, hundreds of thousands of our young men whose expectancy of survival would otherwise have been small could someday walk again through their own front doors. There you go. Right. QED. Well, well all right, I could do better than that. Go on, then. Bill Williams. Bill Williams, yeah. of course. Brigadier Edgar Bill yep. Williams, 21st Army Group's Chief Intelli Intelligence Officer, commented, we were always very aware of the doctrine, let metal do it rather than flesh. We always said, waste all the ammunition you like, but not lives. Yeah. And this is, and this is from uh, John Buckley, by the way. This is from Monty's men. Lieutenant General Charles Alfrey, who's a corps commander in Italy, always insisted on the maximum use of artillery and the minimum use of bodies in his battles. Yep. I mean, this is, this is, this is it. This is the, 
you know, you, you, you fight a materiel schlacht because you've got materiel. Yeah. You know, and you let the Germans burn theirs up. And, the, and uh, of course, this is the antithesis of the German thing, which is to do a super, super, you know, super quick battle as quickly as possible with battle, battle with tactical craft at the heart of that battle. And all that sort of stuff and close combat and all that sort of thing. Whereas if you can if you can shell them before they get to you, or if you can bomb them before they get to you, or what's you can because like? oh what's not to like? I mean and in many ways, you know, if you look at the First World War, the blockade is the first manifestation. Uh, you know, the Royal Navy have been mm. have, have, after all have been doing this since time began. You fight one battle, one enormous set piece battle, and keep the other side's navy at at bay and and, yep. and it's that that's the thinking and that it you you can see it that it comes from being a country that is a island power in a continental war that that you've only got so many people but what you've got is the world's resources at your disposal so let metal do it rather than flesh and these are people these people these people talking about this you know they've been they've been party to this conversation haven't they that, that, yeah. that's gone on at the highest level and the army, the army had very much made its mind up about this for lots and lots of political reasons as much as anything else. Although it is striking, after all. One of the reasons you do this, the other reason, the other reason you do this is so that when the peace comes, you can fill your factories back up. And what you don't have is an economy that's buggered because another million working age men have been killed in combat. Whereas, of course, I mean, the, the irony there, I suppose, is the Germans suffer. What, how, many people, how many German men are killed in the Second World War? What is it? Nine million. Yeah, exactly. And then they go and have an economic miracle. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, so you could uh, you could argue, um, uh, you know, that if you, what you really want to do is get your country into a state of Armageddon, then you'll be fine. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, sort of. that, that, that's kind of broken reasoning if you want it. I mean, maybe what because because you're short of labour, everyone has to work terribly hard, and that's how you, that's how you get your economic miracle. Anyway, but it, but steel not flesh is absolutely the the, the certainly for, for the British is absolutely the cornerstone. Oh, it is, of how it, it, it is the Americans as well, and for um, the Americans as well. But but there, I've got you. There's British people saying it. Yeah. Waste all the ammunition you like, but not bodies. Well, it's interesting. You know, I've just been looking at a really small kind of a comparatively small two day battle called uh, Operation Maori 2, uh, which happens on the 11th, 12th of July, 1944, um, uh, and involves the capture of a small village called Hotto. And um, uh, I was looking at the artillery plan for that yesterday. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding. You know, this is at the same yeah. time where this is all, you know, Charmwood is still kind of sort of wrapping up. Operation yeah. Jupiter for Hill 112 is going on. And yet yep. you still have this unbelievably complex artillery plan, uh, which involves airbursts and long way stuff and two minute, of, you know, moving yep. on to different areas, maps of the areas they're going to concentrate on. And these are this is not just slinging shells left, right and centre. These are concentrations where they have reports from patrols where Germans are. Let's smother it. And they, they it's just it's absolutely incredible. Colossal you, you, cracks. You, Colossal cracks, but you you get you get such a vivid and strong sense from looking at this fire plan of the might of British artillery. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and the, you know which is equally applicable to Canadian and and of course the US artillery as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah, the absolutely. fire plan. This this is the this is where the kind of you know yeah, but you know tigers and panthers had bigger guns and all this kind of stuff doesn't really work because yeah that is true, but we also had gargantuan numbers of anti tank guns which the Germans didn't have. Mm. So, so yeah. you, you, uh, and how so, many anti-tank guns do you have? Not, not how many yeah. tanks do you have. 
Well, how many, and how many self-propelled guns do you have? Which, after right. all, the, are the anti-tank guns? You know. Um, uh, well, there was that, that brilliant thread by Jonathan Ware. By Jonathan Ware, yeah, yeah, about the M10, yeah. Because after all, those are, those aren't tanks. That they they are self-propelled guns, and they're Royal Artillery vehicles. So they're part of they're part of um, divisional batteries rather yeah. than yeah. They're, they're, so they so they don't count as tanks. So people, when you count when you do your oh look, they've got this many tanks and that many that many tanks with a viable anti-tank weapon you're not looking in the right place for where the anti-tank fire is coming from and after all the stats tell us over and over and over again it's anti-tank guns that are doing for tanks not tanks um uh or typhoons anyway right uh another well so let's go let's just uh uh, do a a little bit more tanking reese jones this is a good question um if you were part of a tank regiment and your tank was destroyed but you survived how would you go about getting a new one issued to you and would you always get the same type of tank well yes if you're if you're in a regiment where you know you were equipped with shermans you get another sherman so yeah there was yeah. a thing called the fds which was a field delivery squadron um and, and that would either be brought up to you or you'd be sent back to go and get it i mean it's a, it's a really good point actually from reese because i mean the amount of times that i've interviewed someone and it says well you know i was in this battle and then i you know i got knocked out anyway the next day we were back and you go hang on a minute i thought you just told me your tank was knocked out you know how, yeah. how did that happen well we went and got back another one i mean it's exactly the same as as tom neal saying you know where they came from i have no idea but every morning we had yeah. you know full complement yeah. of hurricanes it's, it's well that's it's, also it, that's also steel not flesh right there Right, 100%. And, you know, the system by which that happened is just is just breathtakingly efficient. Um, yep. You know, so you can have a big long, but, you know, on the, uh, by, by the 3rd or 4th of July, I think, I think um, B Squadron in the Sherwood Rangers was down to seven tanks out of 19. You know, within right. three days, they're full complement, they go back to 19 again. God, it's amazing. You know, and it? It, that's what I call big war. It's that it's yeah. that long tail of of and, and it's it's the unsung bit, and it's the bit that's not sexy, and it's the bit that's not kind of you know, it's not the 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 coal face of war. So it doesn't really get commented on, but but it is absolutely a part of the Allied war machine. This this ability to keep supply, keep pushing through. I mean, you know, the number of replacement tanks that come into front lines of frontline independent armor brigades, for example, in the in British Second Army in Normandy, compared to the oppo is just astonishing i mean you know yeah. panzer or 12th hitler jugend ss panzer division for example you know they they arrive in normandy you know in the first days of, of just after d-day and and they've got what they've got which is a r- pretty good complement of tanks but that just gets whittled down and down and down and down and down and down and down until they literally can no longer function you know the, the, yeah. yes they're getting a handful of replacements but it is a handful yeah whereas yeah. The British and the Americans and the Canadians are consistently getting a hundred percent replacements, and there is the, the you know there's, there's the second um, battalion of the of the Northamptonshire Yeomanry, you know they go into Goodwood, they lose thirty two out of their whatever it is fifty two tanks, thirty seven out of their fifty two yeah. tanks on Goodwood in one day, <laughs> not not completely destroyed, but but you no, know no, no, but, yeah, they're not of, functioning at the end of the day out of out order of combat, yeah yeah. By by the thirtieth of July, they've got they're one hundred percent back again. Amazing. Yeah, it really it is, is amazing. amazing that. It really is yeah. amazing. Genuinely amazing, that isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And 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 again, it's that's still that's still not flesh. What's not happening is those blokes are told, right? Okay, well, you're a, you're a rifleman now. Now yeah. your tank's gone because because you know Panzerlair. Once your once your Stug's blown up or whatever, um, I expect you, you, you. What do you do? You go back 
and you're a rifleman because because after all everyone everyone in the German army is a rifleman first and foremost I suppose I mean it, it, it it's it is very interesting isn't it because because as you say that isn't the intro, that people aren't interested in that bit are they if no. you you know the, when when we do the audiobooks it's the fighting people everyone wants to their of stories course. they want to hear we don't want to hear about the about the bloke who's you know ferrying Sherman tanks backwards and forwards from uh from uh, Pool or wherever, you, 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 or Portsmouth, or you know what I mean, Calshot or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's just no, no. Why would? Because it's because let's be honest, that's nowhere near as exciting or interesting. No. But it is. But it is the it's the key to the whole thing. But it also demonstrates. I mean, the other, you know, the thing Peter alluded to on Thursday night is the Allies being almost lo- the weather almost defeats the Allies in Normandy, and the, so the because the Allies are so reliant on this supply chain working because after all. You know, uh, if you are if you're if you're operating at this tempo where everything gets replaced, if there's any delay or hold up in that, which is after what leads to Goodwood, is that's why you have a surplus of tanks and 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 not enough ammunition and all that sort of thing to to do it to to do a proper assault there, a proper combined arms assault. That's part of the problem, isn't it? That's part yeah. partly part of why they involve bomber command as well. Yeah. Is it's like well we're 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 kind of stuck here because of the storm. So our supply, our supply phase lines, as it were, are all out of whack, and that's the weather. Um, and so your your system is vulnerable to other things rather than the enemy, because the enemy aren't really interdicting this at all, are they? The no. Germans aren't. The Germans have got no because they've lost the battle at the Atlantic by this point. They've got no influence over the supply chain at all, really. Which again, you know, a thing we often talk about head scratching is why you don't fire as many V1s and V2s at the Normandy lodgment as you possibly can. And, and create a contested supply space just doesn't occur to them because no. they're not they're not thinking like that. They, it, it's interesting because because they're not thinking logistically. They're not assuming that the allies are, whereas the allies, because the allies are obsessed with logistics, are bombing the Maybach factory in Paris and are bombing, you know, bombing ball bearing plants and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and whatever, because they're obsessed with log- logistics. Yeah. And the and the and the and the. Behind the scenes of war. I mean, in lots of ways, you know, it's also it's sort of like the moon landing, isn't it? It's three guys in the rocket, but a hundred thousand people build build the rocket. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, the whole system is, is so is so impressive. I mean, you know, the moment you know it, it, you have this light aid attachment attached to every regiment, which is part of Remy, which is you know obviously part of the Royal Engineers, uh, a separate part of the Royal Engineers, but but effectively engineers, and. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, you have these these sort of field workshops, which are brought up. You have within the actual regiment, you have a technical adjutant whose job is to oversee kind of pulling tanks off the battlefield. So yeah. at night, they're beetling around pulling these tanks that have knocked out, most of them which are completely salvageable. You yeah. know, and that's the point of Goodwood. You know, it's it's 493 or something tanks get damaged on the 18th of July. But within 24 hours, I think... 225 of them are back in action whereas those tiger tanks that are flipped over are yeah. not are not are not recovered and 
brought back in. I mean, it, well, also I they're mean, going they're going forward, aren't they? So they're then yeah, taking yeah, over that yeah. battle space. So so you yeah, can't yeah, have it back exactly, again. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Given the lack of suitable shipping, Paul Ewan asks: Even the lack of suitable shipping, was any invasion of Britain doomed to fail because of the obvious supply issues? I mean, this is the same question in reverse, really, isn't it? Um, or the same subject in reverse. Also, do people potentially do people underestimate the Home Guard LDV potential given the numbers of First World War veterans in their forties with home terrain advantage? That's that's interesting. Yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. Although First World War veterans, France's France's First World War veteran population are like sod this yeah. in nineteen forty because because after all, a large chunk of the a large chunk of the French army is reservist, isn't it? And you're yeah. you know, you'd have had an awful lot of people who'd been Pulo in the First World War, given a rifle, sticking a sticking tin hat and a great coat, told to go off to um uh go off to war and they didn't they weren't particularly interested were they so who knows i mean the lack of suitable shipping is the crucial part isn't it yeah 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 it's a, it's a, that's why they were going to have you know one motorized rhine river barge towing two other rhine river barges i mean <laughs> can you imagine i mean what happens when you actually get to the shore i don't know you 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 I don't know. Do you, do you, do you beat exactly? Do you beach the river barge? I don't know. Do you, do you, you get the port. first one on, and they all just run from jump from one river barge to another one? I expect that's exactly what they do. I don't know. Bit of a tasty target, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Who knows? But um, yeah, we I do... think generally Home Guard weren't as bad as people made out. I mean, the trouble is, is, is ever since, um, ever since, since Dad's army, Dad's army, sort of really got got beyond it. Well, yeah, I guess. A bit I don't know. I mean, I always, I always think, yeah, Dad's army's an in- interesting artifact because you know when they, when they commit, when they piloted it, the, the, the sort of, I mean, they met, went ahead and made it, and it was a massive success, obviously. So this is one of those sort of, this is again a counterfactual that um, <laughs> isn't really worth entertaining. But at the time, there were people going, "Why do you want to do a thing about the war? War's over, you know. We've moved on from that." You know, yeah. what, what, who's interested in this? You know, these old these old men. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Yeah. Just quite interesting, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and and also nothing funny about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how that one's endured, isn't it? Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. But then Faulty Towers, famously, there's that very very funny famous letter about Faulty Towers, which is from from someone at the BBC going. It's just a, it's just a load of, it's a load of rubbish, cliched characters. What's the point? You know, why are we, why are we making this rubbish? It's really, really yeah. funny. <laughs> anyway, well, well, I still find it, I still find it AR Hotman funny. And I should. Oh but. crikey! Yeah, that's a forbidden program. Um, well, no, right, but but, well, you know, but it is still funny if you can't, <laughs> if you're not in the business well, of getting I mean, overly offended. Well, have you seen the one when they get home? The last no. one is very, very interesting. No, because they because. Because the scene of them arriving back at back at, because I thought, oh well, I watched the last one. I'll see how they, I'll see how they wrap it up. Is the one I watch. Um, there is the, there is the one where they finally go into battle, and there's a lone Japanese guy hanging, holding out, and they they coax him out by dressing Gloria up as a as a woman, and he comes out because he thinks there's women waiting for him, right? And that's how they get <laughs> coax him out, um, so which is funny. the sort of logic. Well, yeah, it's the lo- the logical conclusion of the entire thing, basically. <laughs> and the sergeant major, he's obviously in charge of a concert party because he's useless, right? The sergeant major, um, yeah, uh, and the officers are obviously in charge of a concert party because they're useless. But the sergeant major, he get finally gets his boys into action and wins, so he gets what he wants. But the last one when they come home, they all don't know what to do with themselves, and they're all like, 
they're all you know and someone i think someone steals their luggage when they get when they get um into port and it's like well where have you been burma they've been and it's forgotten army they've just basically been forgotten about and all that sort of thing and it's quite the, the final episode's a pretty bittersweet episode because right. they're sort of all a lot, you know, the war's over and they've they've lost their purpose, which is quite interesting. Anyway, um, we've gone we've gone off piste. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> um, well, I think that's all we have got time for. Um, uh, thank you again. A quick thank you to everyone who joined up for um, uh, joined us on Thursday for a bravura performance from Peter Kelly Adams. Um, and all the Patreon membership is, we I mean we've got over two thousand people. Uh, is it still an independent company? We're we're a we're a battle group, surely by now. A brig, almost brigade <laughs> strength. Camp grouper. <laughs> we need a rename. Some, there's certainly some camp going about today talking about independent battalion. I think we are. I think we've got to rename. Yeah, I think we. Yeah, I think we might have to. Um, a reminder, of course, if you enjoy you the merge. podcast, that, that we do the show. <laughs> <laughs> we do the show live every Thursday night at eight thirty p.m often with guests and with an opportunity for you to ask them a question in the show. Or we just chat the sidebar of shame. We'll talk to each other and don't listen to either of us. More than 700 of you turned up um, to talk to Peter last Thursday and it was a load of fun. Um, well, uh, and well, and Thursday morning, we're back uh, with John Buckley, who I, whose book I quoted earlier on. Um, yeah, and, he's, and we're he's, big fans, uh, aren't we? Big, big fans, and he's, he's fantastic. That's one of those ones where, where but we don't really have to say much. Um, no. No, and we'll see you Thursday press the on the button, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll see you uh, Thursday for the live stream. Get your towel down early for that one. Thanks very much for joining us. See you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.